0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact?
1: The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. To this day, if you see a guy like David Tell, and he's always at one in the morning at the cellar, and nobody understands why he's not a little further along, even though anybody in the stand-up comedy world knows he's the greatest comic that may, when all is said and done, have ever lived. And Dave Chappelle will tell you that, and Chris Rock will tell you that, and all the best people in comedy will tell you Dave teller is the greatest. And when you see him, 1 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday at the cellar, It's like seeing a Bob Dylan. And it's the reason you want to live in New York City is to have that experience and see David Tell somehow do 20 minutes of new stuff because he's so afraid that his peers are going to think he's a hack. Comes up with 20 minutes of new stuff every night. It's it's unbelievable. And that's how the reputation grew because it was more of an intelligent brand of comedy. You weren't there to... Split your gut laughing, you were trying to see these people get it together I'm Dave Jusw, a comedian and I'm a seller graduate. I approve this podcast.
0: Yes, as you just heard, that is the voice of comedian Dave Juscow and you've tuned into another episode of Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy Hello. This is Harmon, and hi. And we are back with a brand spanky new episode on the history of the Comedy Cellar, along with Dave Juskow, who is a Comedy Cellar regular, and the host of the Comedy Cellar Tuesday's podcast. As you might know, the Comedy Cellar is one of the most iconic comedy clubs in the world. Here in New York, it's considered the Yankee Stadium of comedy clubs, and so many great legendary comedians have gotten their start at the comedy cellar. We're talking your Dave Chappelle's, we're talking your Dave Attell's, we're talking your Todd Berry's. we're talking your Colin Quinn's, we're talking your Ray Romano's, your John Stewart's, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and etc., and we are going to do a deep dive into the history of said comedy club. But before we jump into the episode, a few quick plugs. On Friday, March 8th, 7 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater, I'll be presenting my show, AI vs. Human Roast Battle. Also, March 22nd, 23rd, I will be in London at the Rosemary Branch Theater doing my solo show, Harmon Leon in The Jokes Saved My Soul. And you can find out about all these tour dates on my site at harmonleon.com or on the social medias at harmonleon. Also, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll read your comment right here on the podcast. Also, while you're at it, show us some love. Throw a few stars up there on, I don't know, Apple, if you get your podcast there. And now, without further ado. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone! Excuse me! Comedy History 101. So to jump right in, here's like a real softball question that I, I haven't even originated this question for this interview particularly. But if I were, hypothetical, a space alien who's just landed in Planet New York, how would you describe the comedy seller?
1: Well, I would say if you were looking for comedy, like if you were a space alien that seemed to know comedy and you were looking for stand-up comedy... I would say that the comedy cellar is the best place to go. The comedy cellar is still the the best place where you're going to see the most professional comics. And as, as you can know, but the comedy Cellar, but just by the lines alone and the fact that they have nine shows a night and they're expanding by next year to, you know, a fifth or sixth room, (laughs) you know, there's already four rooms at the comedy cellar and they're making, an. Uh, they, they took over that McDonald's down the street on Third Street. So obviously the people have spoken all over the world and that's something the other clubs don't have of where people will wait and try and get into the comedy cellar. I'm there almost every night and the lines of people trying to get in or not understanding that you need reservations way in advance and stuff like that is like nothing I've ever seen before. So the Comedy Cellar still has the cachet that the other comedy places don't have. And the question is why? I I don't know, for real. I mean, it, obviously the level of comedians is there. There's been a change in the recent years of the maybe age that it's been better. Like they've had more younger comics come in and stuff. It used to be kind of the same comics for, for 30 years. But the big factor is, you just don't know who may stop by and may just do a set out of nowhere and a surprise, and that's always been a big deal wherever you see comedy.
0: And what's your history with the club? When when did you start going to the cellar?
1: Well, I started going there in the late 80s, early 90s, was very happy to get on stage there and everything, but I don't even know where I got involved I know I was banned there for a while Ooh, then... we could go into that later with, yeah <laughs> with
0: with my question of the controversies over the years
1: <laughs> yeah but yes, I've been a, a comedy seller we call ourselves a you know comedy seller family and it's the kind of place that when you're don't have anything else and it's New Year's Eve or something. I could go down and be with my friends that I have considered family over the year, over the years. And it's really quite a lovely community. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Yeah. I mean,
0: is that one of the like personalities of the cellar is just sort of comedian's first family sort of atmosphere that stems from, you know, the ownership of the olive tree restaurant, which is above the cellar.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that makes it different than all the other places. There's definitely a a rich history to it it, and its owner and its ownership and the way they treat the comics. Yeah, I think,
0: wasn't it like the first to have like a no heckling policy?
1: Uh, I don't know about that. I mean. Or it has a no heckling policy. (laughs) I'd like to think all the clubs have that. Yeah. That if there is trouble, somebody comes over right away. But somebody, obviously, people can get through sometimes, I guess, if we're not expecting something. There's been controversy over the years of the comics that Noam, the owner, lets play there because he has a, a history with them and maybe they in this cancellation era we live in where there's still really good quality comics who haven't really done anything wrong and the owner wants to let them play there and then people start walking out, which is completely new. You know, they had to go through that as well to still make it to where they are the best.
0: Yeah, and what logistically makes it the best? Kind of give us like a just a walkthrough tour of, you know, basement club,
1: low ceilings. Well, you're talking about, well, right, the first, where it first started, the actual comedy cellar on McDougal Street. Yeah, it's odd that a place like that would be the best place. It's just a stupid, true cellar basement that just had a bunch of leftover furniture in it that nobody was doing anymore with had to become the greatest comedy club in New York at least for sure and then really the country but i mean you can make a case for other places out in california but this place yeah it's it's crazy because it's just it's a a cellar a true basement cellar it's not flashy the bathrooms are kind of gross and, yeah, yeah, and, and the this...
0: people—is it still like the people upstairs have to walk through the comedy room to use the bathroom from the restaurant?
1: <laughs> That's why I never pee there. I use a bar across the street that we have a relation that I have a relationship with because yeah, I, I refuse to walk through the comedians because, especially if David Tell, for instance, is on stage, he will make fun of me when I go to the bathroom, and I don't need that if I'm just going to pee. But it's also the greatness of the club too. Just because I don't want to get made fun of, some people love it, but it is funny if you're just an average person. And my mother, I'm taking to the Olive Tree restaurant, and to pee, she's got to go through the comics, and yeah, have going like to mock Nick Apollo,
0: like Ripper, a new one.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of hilarious. Yeah. So you know, again, that's interesting as hell. It's a great, fascinating reason to also go even just to the restaurant.
0: Yeah. So take us back. So I believe it was 1981 when the club started. A comic, Bill Grunderfield, is Bill
1: it? Grunfest.
0: Grunfest. There you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Bill Grunfest. Right. The the place wasn't a comedy club. They had the Cafe Wa next door, which was that was all owned by the same person, which is Gnome's Dwarman's dad, and he owned the club, and he owned the the restaurant. The olive tree and the basement was just full of furniture, and that was where the bathrooms were. And Bill Grunfest just said, You know, you should think about doing stand up comedy here. We should have a, a show. And they're like, Yeah, that I guess we could do that. I mean, it's really as easy as that. Somebody said, This is a great room to have a show, which is so funny because so many people do that with rooms. I mean, you and I met where Susie Felber put together a show at the Elks Club. Yeah. And why doesn't that become the comedy cellar, (laughs) right? It's the same premise. It's just a little room in the middle of nowhere. Well, I mean, granted, this one's in the West Village. Yeah, that's (laughs) Weehawken. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) But there's plenty of rooms in the West Village that don't become the comedy cellar. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's I mean, again, it's like the logistics. And again, you know, just producing shows in New York, I've gone on foot walking around looking for venues and just... You know, and again, the history of the village is, you know, you have the bitter end, you have, you know, all those music venues where say, you know, Cheech and Chong got their starter, Woody Allen, or, you know, Lenny Bruce. And what was like the year? Was that all kind of like on a wane out or what was the New York comedy scene going on back then? I mean, now it's just like the Edinburgh Festival where every bar has a comedy show, but,
1: you know, different year... I think what, what happened, I mean, I came in around 1987 when I, not the comedy seller, that was where you wanted to strive to play. Even it had a good reputation, even back then, not the reputation it has now. It was a really good one though, but it was a comedy club you wanted to get into. But in 1980, when I started comedy in like 1983, there were just comedy clubs. It's funny now when there's, comedy rooms and all this expansion. And I think that came from the level of comedy that was on television. So there was only comedy clubs. There was Catch Rising Star. There was the improv, which you see on Seinfeld on the, on 44th and 9th. There's, there was the comic strip and the comedy cellar. And I don't, I don't even think I've forgotten one. And these were the, like, there were four or five places you could play if you were a comic. And people tried to build stuff, but they just they would go up and come down and they just couldn't compete with the actual comedy clubs. Yeah, Was, and,
0: it, and, was his intent just to like have like a one nighter club like, you know, we see now in, you know, typical
1: bar room, New York kind of rooms or was it? That wasn't good? a thing. Oh, yeah. That, that's what now I remember my place. That mm-hmm. wasn't a thing. It was then all of a sudden A&E started doing comedy shows like the improv, the improv out in L.A. started evening at the improv. And then Caroline's came up with the Caroline's Comedy Hour. And then there was A&E Comedy on the Road, which included a lot of other places in Chicago and Phoenix and all these kind of places. And so Sunday nights on the A&E channel would be a lot of stand-up comedy, taped stand-up comedy, but on television. And that started this incredible boom of ev- the the adage of, like, what is everybody's a comic now became true and everybody wanted to get into stand up comedy it used to be a very minor amount of people and it wasn't like it is today where really everyone thinks they can make it as a stand up comic now it's really a disaster in many yeah. ways the the worst people and real and and the best people were only trying to get it i mean there was always people that really thought they were and they stuck with it and they sucked <laughs> but the best people really got through and now it's just totally different. But everybody seemed to, and once it was on TV, everybody said, well, I can do this. It was, you You, you had this, the comics on the, on the late shows, and that's it. You had the comics on The Tonight Show and Letterman and the, the Murph Griffin show. And that's the only time you could see comedy on television. And then it expanded with all these people you'd never heard of before, which led the mentality to be like, well, I could probably do that too, which totally happened to me. The yeah. first time, if, if this is interesting to you, The first time I did stand-up was in 1983. I was watching the David Letterman show. He was on at 1230 at night. And for some reason, you know, he couldn't get a lot of guests. And at 130 in the morning, the show was an hour. He had the owner of this very small but legendary club in Brooklyn called Pips. Oh, yeah, that
0: Andy Kaufman, one of his early gigs was at Pips.
1: Maybe. I I know Andrew Dice Clay started there for sure. I don't know if Andy Kaufman was in the city. I know he's more LA so that, but that could be true. It and that club was legendary. It was a place right in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And so he had the owner of this club on. I mean, this really small club. It was hilarious. That could never happen today. I mean, Nome could be on a show, but not a club the the guy from the Village Lantern isn't going to be on the Tonight Show, you know. Yeah, the so, Grizzly Pear. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> They're not going to they they could be on a, a smaller show, yeah. you know. Anyway, so he goes. I'll never forget. It. And he goes on. He goes, well, you know, Wednesdays we got an open mic. You come down. You sign up. We'll put you on. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna do that. And so I went to Brooklyn. I lived in New Jersey. And I'm I'm dressed up in a tie because that was the attire back then. You, you dressed yeah. up because that's what you saw on TV. Everybody's yeah. dressed up. And. I thought there was going to be a huge line. No one was there. Nobody was watching Letterman at 130. I mean, there was a couple of us, but nobody was committed to comedy. Yeah, they I signed up. They put me on. It was exciting. I mean, it was just as easy as that back then. Mm-hmm. The next so I, I went in the summers every Wednesday while I was in college. And it was really terrific and met all these lovely people. And then when I got out of college, I started trying to perform in the city. Yeah. And me and David Tell and You know, then this guy Mike Royce and the stuff we all tried to get on. We all tried to get to places like the Comedy Cellar and the Improv. That was the goal, which I don't even know whether that's the goal anymore.
0: I'm trying to use the phone.
1: Well, you
0: You know, there's so many different outlets, you know, you can be a TikTok star and that's your venue, but you that's know, that's
1: changed everything. Yeah. yeah. But when,
0: when you're coming up, who, who, who was the, like on your regular lineups at the cellar?
1: Well, that's, like, that's the, who most the heavy hitters. Well, so, so the way the cellar kind of came to where it is, is this guy, Bill Grunfest started the show and they had people there. And then there was this guy, Mark Cohen, who is now the house MC at the comedy cellar in Vegas and his friend, Mike Rowe, and they kind of made the cellar an awesome place. And they had a little comedy team together, Rowe and Cohen. And and they, they made it fun and late night and a late night happening and built it up to where it got to the level close to where it is today and made it exciting and like i said right in the heart of the west village which was a, a big happening late night place i mean you're talking about catch rising star which is a great place that's on 77th street and first avenue that wasn't a big late night happening there yeah this made Unless it you, like, fun mid-times. to go <laughs> right <laughs> and this made it fun to go at 10 o'clock 11 o'clock midnight and this place would still be happening so these two guys kind of bought in other comics and Colin Quinn was there when I started and, and Kevin Brennan, who now has been let go, like canceled, I guess, even though he's incredible to me still, but. Is, is that uh, Neil
0: Brennan's brother?
1: Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. In fact, Neil Brennan always credits me with helping him in comedy because we took him around when he, Kevin brought him around when he was like 11. And I guess, I guess I was, because he was 11 and I'd be like listen kid this business <laughs> will chew you up and spit you out and he knew I was kidding and he got the gag yeah, even at 11 funny. you know yeah. that I was playing the old the old guy with the cigar, you know, like, and telling him that. So he totally, he had he got comedy at a very young age, which was obvious. So anyway, so these guys started it and then it became like this really fun, interesting place. I, Ray Romano was there. I'm trying to think, obviously, who was there.
0: Yeah, I think more interesting is like, who did you see really struggling in their early years? Like I was reading this Vanity Fair article on the oral history of the cellar. And it was like, Jon Stewart would just, bomb on a regular basis and he worked at a mexican restaurant down the street
1: that's (laughs) that panchitos that's right that's where i met him he worked there he wasn't even working the cellar yet you know he had to aspire to get there too we're about the same we started around the same time and yeah he'd bomb all the time he hated comedy but anybody that knew comedy knew him and a tell david tell who would you know think that he's bombing just like john stewart they weren't bombing Anybody that knew comedy knew there was something special about these two in particular, and somebody like Colin Quinn also would technically be, quote, bombing, but it wasn't bombing. And if you were an intellect in any kind of way, this was like seeing Bob Dylan in that same neighborhood and getting it. And that's how the reputation grew, because it was more of an intelligent brand of comedy. You weren't there to split your gut laughing you were trying to see these people get it together and if you got it then it was the best time you could ever have and just like people got bob dylan at the beginning like this guy can't even sing i, I don't even think he carries a tune but it's the same thing i mean really to this day if you see a guy like david tell and he's always at one in the morning at the cellar. And nobody understands why he's not a little further along, even though anybody in the stand-up comedy world knows he's the greatest comic that may, when all is said and done, have ever lived. And Dave Chappelle will tell you that, and Chris Rock will tell you that, and all the best people in comedy will tell you David Teller is the greatest. And when you see him, one o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday at the cellar, It's like seeing a Bob Dylan. And it's the reason you want to live in New York city is to have that experience and see David tell somehow do 20 minutes of new stuff because he's so afraid that his peers are going to think he's a hack comes up with 20 minutes, 20 minutes of new stuff every night. It's, it's unbelievable. And And it, it cannot be seen on television. That's the problem. His stuff is good enough, but you're not getting his greatness when he does television.
0: Yeah. And do you think like that's like comedians like a tell just the room kind of, you know, I was reading this book. I think it was written by what's the name, David Byrne of the talk he has that said, like, you know, music's dictated by the room. Like, say the music that came out of CBGB's was dictated by these low ceilings and kind of logistics where like a church where sound goes everywhere. Do you think a style of comedy was dictated by the style of the room of the comedy seller?
1: Excellent question. I've been to CBGBs before, and he's exactly right. It was like it was such a shithole that it it. I think it's you're right. It's the 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 thing of the you're in a shithole, and you're seeing greatness. And you're right. The sounds that are coming out. I remember I yeah, I saw I, I saw the remotes there, and I saw other. I mean, up till hole, you know, with what's her face, and uh, you know, seeing a band there was obviously exciting, and every and it was it was it was a like a happening. And when you're there you knew it was greatness obviously by the time I got there CBGBs had had a really good reputation but you're absolutely right the comedy cellar when you're there especially the original location you really think there it's a happening it is exactly like you're saying with CBGBs the low ceilings that the the audience it it permeates it's the the laughs are coming fast and furious and the fact that you have to struggle to even get on the stage and that it is small and Dave Chappelle is going to maybe walk up to this small little, very intimate room. Yeah. That's a great question and you're absolutely right. I'm sure that has something to do with it when all the other comedy clubs had very, very big rooms. This is small and intimate and a guy can sit on a chair and make you laugh for a half hour.
0: And then there's gonna be somebody going through right in front of you using the bathroom from the restaurant That's, upstairs. So that therefore here. You're, you're, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So therefore, you gotta interact. Excuse
1: me. These guys kind of got it going and got the reputation in the late 80s, early 90s. And then it was really to make it what it is today. I think it was Louis CK and his show, Louis, that really made it the level of what it is today where the owner can buy that McDonald's down the street and open a, a fifth room
0: yeah I never heard about the McDonald's that's exciting you know again yeah, they own that whole two block area
1: that legendary horrible McDonald's on third street that had yeah. nothing but nonsense and <laughs> chaos for so many years is now purchased by the comedy cell and they're going to make it a you know a big room which is good for me because then they let me do Different kind of stuff. The owner, thank God, no, this guy is so great. He's always up for doing interesting things, Uh which the other rooms allow you to do, like readings and stuff that you do, storytelling nights, things like that, whereas the other room is only for stand-up comedy, as it should be. You want to make sure there's always just stand-up there for the people that love stand-up, the weirdos that still like just regular stand-up comedy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so what?
0: Fun. What What are the features of the cellar? Is the uh, the legendary uh, comedian's table? Can you tell us a little bit about that well,
1: and its origin? Yeah, somebody just told me about the origin. The I can't even remember now, but I remember. You know, it it was the greatest holy grail of really making it in comedy if you were able to sit there. And obviously, it was just there was no green room, so you just had an area that was. The comics needed to hang out, and you could also get uh, they also give you a free meal or or half off. I don't know. I don't know when it started. Now I think it's free. And we needed a place. The comedians needed a place. The place didn't have a green room. Well, the other places used to have a bar. The improv had a bar. The Catch Rising Star had a bar. The comic strip has a bar. You can see in Seinfeld, the bar. I mean, I know that's just a studio, but it's supposed to be the original improv on 44th Street. And they have a bar the comics hang out in, not a green room. So the sell- the cellar had nothing because they had a restaurant upstairs, not a just a bar. So they just needed an area. They had this table in the back of the room. And finally, they had to put a note there because people were bringing people that weren't allowed to sit at the comics table. You know, they'd bring guests. You had to be really... How, how,
0: how do you get invited over? Is it like one of those old school Johnny Carson invites you over to the couch sort of thing? Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Invited.
1: Pretty much. You know, I, I hadn't passed there and they just let me stay there. I'm like, oh, maybe I should go. And they're like, no, no, you're you're one of us. And I'm like, really? Yeah. How did I get past? I don't know. You had to be You had to be recommended. You know, like uh, Colin Quinn said, it's okay if Just Gow sits here at a tell and all the great people that I know were like, oh, Just Gow's one of us. And He's cool, and he's allowed to. I mean, really, it was—it's like the, that. And now, now, I mean, if you're working at the club, if you passed, and you then you can sit there. But the comedy table isn't what it used to be. They made some <laughs> renovations a few years ago and changed the kitchen area, so now it's a smaller table. It's not what, it, the, like, the dimensions don't make it the table it was. And now it's kind of all scattered out. And it's funny. Atel and I talk about this all the time. The people that sit there are there's just. I don't know. Sometimes we just don't feel like we belong there anymore. I guess maybe it's for younger kids. I don't know. It depends on the day that you're there and who's performing. So it doesn't have the same feel as it did before they changed the dimensions of the room, but it's still, especially if you're a younger comic, it's very exciting to be there. You know, you're sitting with the booker SD, which is really, like you said, the and she's, she's
0: the original booker from, from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. the,
1: there's never been another, which is why she was booking the same people for 30 years. She has all her lineups. She showed us about, I guess, just before COVID, which of course is every story that happens nowadays. She showed us the 1992 listing and the 2019 listing. And there were like definitely five to seven comics that were still playing there. You know, who and who it would was,
0: be who would be like in that sort of rotation? The,
1: the what's the guy that just damn it that just did his thing with Amy Schumer? He just had a stroke, basing on his name, and I've known him for years. And it's damn it, uh, Keith Robinson. Sorry, yeah, that was yeah, going to yeah. kill me. And tell. and I'm trying to remember who was on that list. And Colin. So like, it's a you know those the names. Off the top of my head, obviously, I, I can't think right now. If I thought about it more, I'd probably, like, tonight I'll be sleeping. I'll be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, like, the same. There were five to seven of the same names. And it wasn't, it's not like SD was old and didn't know how to book anybody else. It, but these guys were still great. Yeah, And still willing to play the seller and, and send in their avails. On the flip side of that, I think they started bringing in other people. She started passing people that might not even be ready yet after COVID or during COVID because she realized, well, once Keith had his stroke, I think that changed stuff because she goes, oh, my regulars are dying. I better, I better oh, get boy. some new people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so for a, for a tiny bit of time, people that weren't ready were getting passed. Because they were trying something new and really auditioning a whole bunch of people, and now it's leveled off again, where it's just the 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 cream rises above.
0: Yeah, and was it the Comedians' Table? Was that the basis of Colin Quinn's Tough Crowd TV show? No, or maybe I don't not.
1: know if that was it. I mean, it definitely had the people who were sitting at that table, but no, I think that was just based on his stand-up and what he did and how he was perceived as a comic and how interested he was in current events and the news and talking about it on stage. I think it more came for that. However, everybody that was on that show, right. Like Greg Giraldo and people like that. And we all just would have these conversations at the comics table. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I suppose there is a thing to that. There's probably somebody there that the, you reporters and TV cameras have come in through the years and are always fascinated by the way it works and the conversations we had at the table. I can point out many examples. For instance, even I had a writer from L magazine back in the 90s, which I'm sure you can find somewhere, where I bought it, he was fascinated by how it worked. And I bought him not only over to the cellar to see everybody, but then to the comics table. Like, you know, we got permission for him to sit there and then went over to Mark Cohen's house afterwards, where the comics would go at three in the morning and just hang out and again, still just be funny, not trying new material, but just like that's what we all did. And it was so much fun. It's so not like that anymore. Uh-huh. Now people go home and just work on their stuff or do TikToks, but there wasn't that. So we all got together, went to a diner or went to somebody's house and hung out. And Mark Cohen's was the place where everybody hung out late night and drank, got high. And just because nobody had to wake up until three in the afternoon.
0: Yeah. So do you think was it was, was it the opening credits of Louis that you think really kind of made it the modern comedy seller? Or yep. was yep. it the
1: 2002 Jerry Seinfeld movie Comedian? that had an impact but not at the seller. Louis Louie was the one and that was when he when his show was really popular everybody started going there. He hosted Saturday Night Live then it became even more and they did an imitation of the of his show with the comedy seller. That is when it all well, really came Well, here's up, a, here's, up, a, here's up. a here's a
0: logistical question. When did the uh, the actual seller sign go up?
1: No, oh, I I don't know. I don't again, know. But it's a, I, it
0: was like you know, just a bar room or a basement. I've been room. sitting
1: there with, with like I was with you with outside Steve, who's yeah. been working there for a long time, and it's so funny. We have seen people go. Can you tell me where the comedy cellar is? You know, there's that big lit up spot, yeah. and he's it, just like, "All right, get out." Yeah, you know? <laughs> you're you're not allowed in, even if you have a reservation. You're too stupid.
0: Yeah. And just a couple of last questions. I One controversy I read about was Donald Trump Jr. got punched out there. I think it was in 2002. Have you heard anything about that?
1: No, I, I don't remember that. There's been a lot of controversies that have happened there over the years. One that affected my life somehow, which was a disaster, was, you know, it's been in the paper. Uh, Dave Chappelle and David Tell got into a fight there because Chappelle wouldn't get off stage and Nattel was yelling at him, but in a funny way. And (laughs) people perceived it as a fight, which it was not. I mean, I
0: see Chappelle like, but you know, do, five-hour sets exactly you know, in right in san francisco tell, it was his you know?
1: birthday and yeah. you know we were booing him because Chappelle can handle it yeah but yeah so there's always been controversy There's always been punching out there's been punching out of other comics sometimes and there's always been celebrity nonsense on stage going there.
0: like like or in front of crowds or just backstage. no it usually
1: happens afterwards like on those steps that we walk down after the show you know because people hang out on those steps
0: oh like who i think i've read something about someone I mean that's vague, but yeah. I don't know a lot of
1: comics, and I wouldn't I wouldn't mention their names. Yeah, like yeah, the movies, yeah, yeah. A lot of them have short tempers, mm-hmm. uh, which is surprising because when you see them on stage, you're like, oh, I wouldn't have thought they had a short temper, but they do. But again, with that comics table, I just want to tell you, like, even up until Marina Franklin, they know oh, FX did a show about women in comedy, which is you know I don't know is that I feel like that's almost an embarrassment to do a thing like that at this point, but they yeah. were doing one, well, and they came. Of course, they had to come to the comics table. And it was Judy Gold and Marina and myself. I was there. I I don't know why I was there. Yeah. (laughs) But I remember I was making fun. I shouldn't have been there. It's just mostly the women. But yeah, people are always fascinated by the way things work, comics work, and the way they live their lives and stuff. It's just so different now. It was a lot more entertaining back then. Now, the, the drugs and alcohol don't seem to be as fun as a mix as they used to be. You know, like you said, the TikTok is taken over. Now you get clubs that have TikTok people instead of comedians that sell out. And you can't blame the owners for wanting them, but they don't know what they're doing. We were at the Stress Factory in New Brunswick and some TikTok 19-year-old kid, the place was packed with 25-year-old girls. And they, he goes to his father, so what am I supposed to do? And he's like, well, just just talk, you know, like you do on TikTok. It's <laughs> so like Jesus. Okay. And you know, there's people that would kill to have a headlining gig at places like that. But the climate has changed. What are yeah. you going to do? Yeah. And so
0: what do you remember as you could take your pick on this one? You're either your best set or your worst set at the seller.
1: Well, actually, ironically, the worst set I ever had there was this thing that got me this television show. It's kind of odd. I did this thing on uh, Caroline's Comedy Hour that was legendary in TV and I guess kind of made my bones in the business. I've always told people, like, well, I never heard of you before. And I'm like, yeah, because I had one good set. And they're like, why do you know so many famous comedians? Why do they think you're okay to hang out with? Because I had one good set in 1996, and it was on this show. And before, when I was practicing it, it never worked but it worked this one day, fortunately on TV. So there is footage, but I don't know if it holds up today. And that was a horrible set. And I remember even afterwards, my agent dropped me. I was so bad. And But The Cellar is not where I've had my worst sets. I've had them in Atlantic City and uh, Vegas. I've been booed off stage before. But the best sets were multiple times where that crowd is just so great and fun. And because of, I think... Like you say, the dimensions, even the, I like the other room, the village underground, which holds 200 people instead of the 100. I felt that at home in there. I like walking through the audience with a wireless mic and just talking to people. There's still a, a closeness in that theater. That's fun. And the comics still like it. And again, it's an underground deep cavernous place where it seems like it's a secret. And then you're all there together enjoying fantastic entertainment. You're stupid. Everybody's so
0: stupid. And lastly, what do you think the Comedy sellers place is in comedy history? Well, I know now, you kind of just uh, summed it up like over the last Oh, no, that's minutes, okay. But, yes. I mean, now
1: <laughs> it it's a legendary place that Will be now and forever known as the base, like uh, what is, is it—the Bitter End or the other place that that closed? Uh, I can't. One of the places closed that that everybody played, uh, Dylan and all those people starting in the sixties. Lenny Bruce, like you're saying, At the Bitter End. There was another place that was always in that West Village area. One of them closed forever, but it'll always be known. As the place in every history book on or Wikipedia, it'll be like, and he used to play here. I mean, the Comedy Cellar will be that legendary place.
0: And that wraps up our episode today on the history of the Comedy Cellar. And you can find out more about Dave Just Cow's comedy dates at his site, DaveJustCow.com. And check out his podcast, Comedy Cellar Tuesdays. And as always, remember to take time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts, or on our site, ComedyHistory101.com. And we will read your comments right here on the podcast, such as this. We have a comment from uh, Ozara Thustra on the history of Triple X party records. Ozara writes, love this. And this is spelled with two S's. Well, thank you very much, Ozara And remember, on March 8th, 7 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater, I'll be presenting my show, AI vs. Human Roast Battle. Also, March 22nd, 23rd, I will be in London at the Rosemary Branch Theater doing my solo show. Harman Leon in The Jokes Saved My Soul. And you can find out about all these tour dates on my site at harmonleon.com or on the social medias at Harman Leon. And until next time, bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying. Comedy History 101.